Good evening. This is Rob McClure with your local news coming to you live from the WORT studios on a beautiful evening in downtown Madison. Here are the headlines for this evening. The Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reports today that Senator Ron Johnson has been cleared of any wrongdoing for using taxpayer dollars to cover the cost of flights between a Florida family vacation home and Washington, D.C. The Senate Ethics Committee wrote in a letter to Johnson that it, quote, found no evidence that your actions violated federal law, Senate rules, or standards of conduct. Accordingly, the committee has dismissed the complaint. The complaint said senators may use government funds to pay for official business, but it contended Johnson had, quote, flouted the rule by repeatedly using official funds to subsidize personal travel. Johnson rejected this criticism, saying the flights from Florida to Washington were legitimate expenses. Attorney General Josh Call says a new law going into effect in the state this week will prevent another backlog of untested sexual assault kits. The law sets out timelines for health professionals, police, and the state crime lab in collecting and processing sexual assault kits, according to Wisconsin Public Radio. Call characterized the efforts in a press conference as, quote, transformative for our response to sexual assault. You might remember the State Department of Justice discovered a backlog of thousands of untested kits in 2014. Testing of those kits was eventually completed four years later. Workers at, a da- at Madison's downtown Starbucks will find out tomorrow whether their store will become the first in Dane County to unionize, reports the Capital Times. Evan McKenzie, a member of the union organizing committee at the downtown store, says that in his four years with the company, he's found Starbucks to generally be a good employer. The company offers benefits to employees working more than 20 hours a week, and average wages are set to rise to almost $17 an hour. But workers want a union so they can bargain for seniority pay, better health care, and credit card tips. Currently, the company computer system does not ask customers if they'd like to tip when they use a credit card. The Wisconsin State Journal reported today that Dane County will move about 30 previously unhoused residents from the Madison Plaza Hotel on East Washington Avenue to another unidentified hotel. A developer is proposing to convert the Madison Plaza into 155 to 190 low-cost studio and one-bedroom apartments with amenities for residents. Since August of 2020, the county has rented 100 rooms at the Madison Plaza. As part of the arrangement, the county has worked with providers to deliver meals there and a variety of services, including around-the-clock staffing. Since its inception, more than 400 households have used the county's non-congregate shelter program and 257 people have secured housing. Since the third quarter of 2021, when Madison Plaza came into the program, 167 of 257 residents there have found housing. The effort to consider a new name for Madison's Jefferson Middle Middle School is on hold until October due to low attendance by members of the ad hoc committee appointed for the effort. The Capital Times reports that the school board appointed the committee in March after Jefferson's principal requested a name change. 
The district received 42 proposals for new names, but the ad hoc committee has not discussed them. The committee initially had 12 members, but that dropped to nine as of Tuesday's meeting, according to Barb Osborne, the secretary of the Board of Education. Two of the remaining members had yet to turn in their rankings of the proposals for a new name, leaving the committee unable to move to next steps. Those are the headlines for this evening. Now on to the rest of the day's top stories. Fred Brain has sat on the Natural Resources Board since 2015. Uh, That's disregarding the fact that his term expired last year. Today, the state Supreme Court said that Prane does not need to step down, effectively emboldening the state legislature and weakening administrative agencies. Our producer, Nate Weggehaupt, has the story. The state Supreme Court ruled 4-3 along ideological lines today that Fred Prane, member of the state's Natural Resources Board, is allowed to stay in power until the Republican-controlled legislator confirms a new successor. Prane, a Wausau dentist, was appointed to the board in 2015 by former Governor Scott Walker. Since his term expired in May of 2021, Prane has repeatedly refused calls to step down. Governor Evers proposed his nomination to fill Prane's seat more than a year ago with Sharon Adams, an educator from Ashland, Wisconsin. The Republican-controlled Senate, however, has refused to hold a confirmation vote. That has effectively maintained Republican control of the Natural Resources Board, which sets policy for the Department of Natural Resources and effectively decides the state's environmental regulations. Recently, Prane has voted on the board to reject PFAS regulations in Wisconsin and has been the deciding vote on striking down water quality regulations regarding PFAS. Tony Wilkin Gibbert is the executive director of the Midwest Environmental Advocates. He says that Prane goes against the wishes of Wisconsin residents for clean, safe drinking water. Well, it means that environmental democracy is is weakened. And I think that we have to ask ourselves, why is it that Wisconsin manufacturers and commerce, other lobbyists for polluters, the former governor, Scott Walker, why did they go to these lengths to keep an unelected dentist from Wausau on the Natural Resources Board. And I think that's because those interests fear everyday Wisconsinites having a voice over natural resources decisions. Midwest environmental advocates had previously obtained emails showing that Prane consulted with Republican lawmakers and lobbyists about staying on the board. In today's ruling, the Wisconsin Supreme Court ruled that just because Prane's term expired, he does not need to step down. It found that Prane can stay on the board until his successor is confirmed by the legislature. The legislature, though, is not required to hold a confirmation vote, and they haven't done so for at least 130 of Governor Evers' nominees to boards and five cabinet appointees. Senate Majority Leader Devin LeMahieu told WISP Politics earlier this year that the body would not confirm any more appointees. Several state agencies have also not had their secretaries confirmed, leaving state senators the power to fire members of Governor Evers' cabinet. That happened in 2019 to former Secretary-designee Brad Paff, who was fired by the legislator from his post at the state's Agricultural Department. The move was unprecedented, and it was the first time the legislature had fired a member of the governor's cabinet in at least three decades. Additionally, the court ruled that Governor Tony Evers cannot fire Prane without just cause. 
Attorney Josh Call slammed the legislature at a press conference earlier today. We don't have a, a representative democracy in our state legislature right now. Uh, and now we're again seeing it with this Prame decision because what this is doing is allowing a legislature, which does not represent the people of Wisconsin, uh, to expand its authority and control an executive branch agency. In the dissenting opinion written by Justice Rebecca Dallet, the justice called the ruling absurd and warned that the ruling, quote, steers our state's government directly into disorder and chaos, threatening the fragile separation of powers central to its functions, end quote. Senator Melissa Agard of Madison likened today's ruling to the behavior currently being discussed at the January 6th hearings in Washington. Seeing the fact that Fred Preen is continuing to hold his space on the Natural Resources Board uh, is frankly a symptom of a larger anti-democratic disease that we are suffering from as a nation. And the fact that our Wisconsin Supreme Court is siding uh, with the majority party as opposed to in the best interest of democracy and the people of our state is frankly very, very disappointing and um, and concerning for me. Fred Prane did not respond to WORT's request for comment by airtime. Senate Majority Leader Devin LeMayhew told WORT that Wisconsin is better off without Evers's nominees and that Prane will protect Wisconsin from overbearing DNR regulations. The ruling comes amid a broader Republican push to diminish the powers of administrative offices, especially in environmental regulation. The United States Supreme Court is expected to release an opinion tomorrow that will determine whether the Environmental Protection Agency has the power to regulate power plant emissions or if that role belongs to Congress. If the nation's high court decides against the EPA, the agency's ability to regulate environmental policy or take action on climate change could be severely curtailed. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggie-Hout. Last week's car crash into the Willie Street Treasure Shop was simply the latest of a series of similar incidents in recent years on Williamson Street. So what is being done to prevent such accidents in the future? Our reporter Reed Kamai visited Willie Street last week to see for himself. Shattered window glass, loose wall fragments, and an entry door that has come undone from the building. That was the scene at the Willie Street Treasure Shop in the immediate aftermath of a car crashing into the building last week Monday. Williamson Street, as it is officially known, is no stranger to these crashes. Multiple businesses in recent years have had vehicles crash into their buildings, and the crash into the Willie Street Treasure Shop has resurfaced conversation about the problem. Lance Latimer is the Transportation and Safety Chairperson of the Marquette Neighborhood Association for the Street's residents. He says residents are wondering why traffic incidents seem to happen so frequently on Willie Street. General incredulousness at how on a 25-mile-an-hour street this can keep happening with such severity. Um, you know, medical accidents can happen anywhere and drunk driving can happen anywhere. But if people are going the posted speed limit, it's pretty seldom that, that you know, you should be crashing into a, quite a solid building and causing this type of damage over and over again. There's clearly a reckless driving problem and a speeding problem in the area. 
Edward Marshall is lieutenant of patrol for the Madison Police Department's Central District. He says there's been an influx in traffic lately because of construction. I'm at least seeing maybe a little bit more traffic right now. I think we're seeing a return to more people commuting into the, the isthmus and into the capital area with kind of uh, the, I wouldn't call it the end of COVID. I don't know where we're going with that, but I think people are returning from telecommuting and that's going to add more uh, vehicle traffic. At the same time, um, obviously the construction nearby is going to have some people driving on Williamson Street a little bit more often to avoid uh, traffic snarls at Blair. But that may not account for incidents that happened before the current nearby construction. I visited Willie Street last Wednesday to sample the atmosphere on the roads. For the afternoon on a weekday, on a street with homes and small businesses, and with a speed limit of 25 miles per hour, it was busy. Much of the northbound traffic on Willie Street stems from John Nolan Drive, where the speed limit drops to 25 miles per hour just before the intersection of the streets. The limit is at 35 before that, and as high as 45 as drivers approach Lake Monona and Monona Bay from the south. As part of my Willie Street tour, I spoke to owners and employees of businesses that have been affected. Mother Fool's Coffee House sits on the corner of Willie Street and South Ingersoll Street. A crash into the building in 2016 destroyed their handcrafted front mosaic and forced the business to suspend operations for a month. John Hain, one of the owners, describes the driving behaviors he has seen. I have seen uh, very close calls with kids on bikes, uh, with cars running red lights. Uh, that happens fairly frequently during the rush hour uh, that people race to catch the red light. I've seen up to five cars go through a red light. Ha Long Bay, a Vietnamese restaurant on the corner with South Dickinson Street, was hit by a car in 2018. It closed the restaurant for over four months. Owner Gene Tran worries most about bicyclists on Willie Street. Well, the, the street is like, you know, it's very narrow, it's, it's tough. I've only mostly a bicycle, you know, and they go and we have one lane and a bicycle came and people parked by the side, so I, I'm really not sure how we prevent that. And it's really tight how we can, the most I've only is a bicycle. I don't want anybody hit. Uh, bicycle and how we're gonna prevent that. I don't know if we can do the bike lane in Valley Street. That's what I'm hoping to see that, but I don't know that how happened or not. Then just across the street is an Ace Hardware store. One of the part owners, Tom, describes the close call his store had. Oh gosh, maybe six months ago, uh, late at night, someone came around the corner, broke our telephone pole, hit two cars, I think and careened down the street and the car basically was undrivable. But the police came and everything. That, that guy was probably under some, you know, either pretty drunk or something, I don't know. But anyway, yeah, luckily he did not hit our actual building. I mean, he came really close. Like, he hit the bike rack, took, took that down. And, but yeah, as far as our building, we've been lucky so far. <laughs> Keep our fingers crossed. Also on Willie Street is Change Boutique, which describes itself as an ethically sourced clothing store. Change Boutique was hit in 2021 and also was out of business at that location for four months. Owner Nikki Anderson says that the large windows at the front of the store give her a clear view. This intersection in particular has been um, the site of a lot of reckless driving, um, many collisions here. Um, yeah, thankfully no pedestrian accidents at this intersection, but, um, you know, just a block down, there have been many pedestrian um, 
accidents hit by cars. So yeah, it's pretty, pretty common. Incident reports by the Madison Police Department show eight motor vehicle related reports on Willie Street since the beginning of 2020. Three were collisions with buildings, two were crashes with another car, one involved a car hitting a tree, and in another, the vehicle hit a pedestrian. One incident involved road rage. These occurrences took place in spite of Vision Zero, a signature initiative from Mayor Satya Rhodes Conway to eliminate traffic-related deaths and serious injuries by 2035. One of Vision Zero's focuses is speed control. Consultants for the city of Madison say that reducing a car's speed by 10 miles per hour can drop the risk that a collision with a pedestrian causes death or severe injury by over a third. So, what do these business owners want to see happen to, so to speak, curb these incidents? Tom from the Ace Hardware Store hopes to see stricter law enforcement. So I think enforcement's a huge issue, and I, how do you do that with, you know, the budgets we're on nowadays? I don't know, but uh, I think it's got to be done, because otherwise people are just going to keep on doing it, you know. And as Lieutenant Edward Marshall pointed out, there is the intention to increase patrolling in the vicinity of the street. I, I, my, my, my expectation for my officers now in the, in the isthmus, or working kind of the central district in the isthmus, is that they provide large, largely uh, throughout their shift extra patrol to the East Washington Corridor um, as, part of, as part of our plan to reduce traffic incidents, uh, vehicle versus vehicle, vehicle versus pedestrian, et cetera. So we'll see more officers in that area, but some of that activity is going to obviously filter down to the William Street area too. So we're going to add more um, directed patrol for our officers to try to spend a little more time conducting traffic or monitoring traffic in the William Street, Williamson Street area as they can or as calls for service allow. Craig, a server at Ha Long Bay, shared his ideas. Um, usually the, the knee-jerk reaction is to add more lights if there's an accident of any sort, but I think there's enough lights that traffic generally is probably slow enough during the daytime because there's enough traffic to slow it down. And some people might say get rid of parking permanently to have two lanes. I don't think that's necessary per se because parking is an issue around here because there's a lot of small business. In fact, John Hain from Mother Fools hopes, among other things, for parking to be loosened even further than it is currently. It's very controversial in this neighborhood to talk about removing the rush hour parking restrictions. Uh, I do think that would be helpful to slow things down, and I am sympathetic to the city's argument that it's necessary for commuter, you know, which also could lead us to a discussion about more investment in mass transit and making that function better. So there are less cars, you know, so there's a lot of policy things that could happen towards it. Some of them are incrementally moving that direction and some I don't think there's political support for. So what are the elected officials calling for? Yogesh Chala is the supervisor from the county district that encompasses Willie Street. He believes the city can base improvements to the street on changes made elsewhere. I think we've identified an area of Madison where we see uh, disproportionately high amount of traffic accidents and we see a uh, real safety concern. So I think that we really need to uh, focus on the area first in terms of traffic enforcement with an eye towards safety. And, you know, we need to look at some of the great improvements that have been made in terms of, you know, some of the crosswalks there and uh, signage and whatnot, and also the reduced speeds on East Washington, we have to look at how effective that is, and I think we need to basically go from there. Brian Benford is the Madison Alder whose district, like Chala's, includes the street. He presented two specific ideas. 
that would look like curb bump outs at at, at our curves, uh, narrowing the street, uh, much more uh, canopy trees. Uh, there's research that shows that the more trees and more uh, green canopy uh, has a calming effect that slows people down. Tom Moore, a traffic engineer for Madison, had his say on these ideas. First, with the curb bump outs, anything that bumps out into Willie Street would right now um, cause us, it would necessitate removing one of the peak hour lanes because right now the lane widths are pretty much at a, at a minimum. So if we bump out into those lane widths, we wouldn't have the peak hour lane. The canopy trees idea appears to be more practical in Moore's eyes. I, I know this was brought up during the reconstruction process, which was back around 2011-12 during those discussions and there was a you know a push for undergrounding the overhead lines uh if that were to happen that would i don't speak for forestry but i that would open up the possibility for larger trees in the end for alder brian benford it's about how the street is viewed i would love to see willie street uh the perception change where it's a street uh for destination where you come to visit our amazing small businesses or uh you come um for a purpose uh until we do that we're always going to run into incidents and john hain from mother fools calls on drivers to be more careful on the road oh i just hope everyone sees these incidences and recognizes that we all have a responsibility when we're driving in any neighborhood to go slow. It's, um, it's not worth it for the couple seconds you may gain, you know, if you're going to affect someone's business, your own potential health or life, etc. A tip surely that the cars that passed by in that moment could heed. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Reed Cameron. The time is now 6.26 and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. With last week's Supreme Court decision overturning Roe v. Wade, Wisconsin has reverted back to its 19th century ban on abortions and overnight abortion access in Wisconsin has been cut off. With many people struggling to figure out what happens next, our producer Nate Weggehaupt spoke with Ingrid Anderson, the co-founder of Powers, or Pregnancy Options Wisconsin, a nonprofit organization helping people navigate their pregnancies. A nurse midwife herself, Anderson discussed what Powers is doing to help people find abortion access and the possible slivers of light that may be visible through the dark clouds of the ruling. This is simply a, ser- a segment of the entire interval interview, the full conversation from which you can hear at wortfm.org. So, Ingrid, just to sort of start things off here, I know it's been a sort of a wild west couple of days here. How have you been feeling uh, since since the decision? Well. Um interesting that you should ask because um, a caller that I took on our on our warm line at Powers um, this morning said something that I've heard several people say and I do relate to and that is that she could she feels like vomiting 
and you know, since Friday, since since Roe v. Wade fell, and and as a midwife of more than twenty years, um, that that's not that's 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 not an off-putting image to me and, and somewhat apt, but, I, but also as a midwife, I know that vomiting doesn't happen just out of disgust. It also happens when labor is progressing. So, so I've been encouraging people to, to let it all out, to let their feelings out. And, um, and that's, I think what I've been doing and what people have been doing on the call line. Um, there's a lot of need for emotional support as well as practical support, and we've got each other's back. So no, things are never all bad. Um, there's some. There's a lot of good in this moment, also. So, what are you doing for patients over at Power uh, when people come to you? You said that there's both uh, supportive health and then more direct help that you offer as well. What can you sort of tell me about Powers? We are a educational information resource and emotional support line. So we have a call line to also um, offer text line and a very informative, um, kind of exhaustive and up-to-date website. So a lot of healthcare workers will just refer folks who need more in specific information on abortion um, to our website or, or the call line. Um, we also, so we take a lot of calls from, from healthcare workers. We also take calls, uh, like from you, from the press. We also, because there's a lot of confusion in the landscape right now, um, regarding funding, regarding logistics of getting clinical appointments and how to get there. Um, and, and then we just offer emotional support for folks who are just grieving since Friday, um, because even though we did know it was probably going to happen, those of us in my age bracket who've been working for decades in um, keeping abortion rights safe and legal, um, it's, it's such a blow. It's, it's, it's such a, it's, it, it, there's really a, a sense of death or, you know, profound loss. Um, and so just talking it out and hearing that there is, it is not the 1960s. It it is uh, uh, it is a different scene. We are not going back in time. We are going forward thanks to the advent of pill abortions and the widespread access of affordable pills for abortion, as well as the incredibly um, well developed and well organized networked. Um, movement around around keeping abortion uh, uh, access safe, particularly for those who find it hardest to access, right, for our rural communities, our communities of color, our disenfranchised communities, uh, incarcerated communities, trans, LGBTQ, um, friendly and informed care. Um, these are these are all way, way, way beyond where we were at in the 60s and 70s. So that's, that's also good news in, in, in the chaos. And so now you mentioned at sort of the top of this interview that there is some good happening right now. And that sort of that feels almost hard to believe. Uh, what can you, what sort of good is happening right now? Well, as I said, it's, um, you know, a physician friend said that um, in her office, somebody was likening this to to the to the death of a, a of an ailing family member. I mean, this is a very intimate, um, profoundly personal and and life changing um, 
decision and 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 choice that people make for themselves. So so there's an element of knowing it was coming, knowing a death was coming and preparing for it and taking all the care we could and loving each other um, you know as best we could knowing this death was coming and yet when it hit it, it's devastating it's a kick to the gut um, but then we're able to get to the other side also and that is a new world that is a, a place where we are now able to come together in something new and fill fill um, something that was already very frail and very ailing and um, you know that the, the there already was so much so much difficulty and challenge to access abortion in in the state of Wisconsin already that now the outflow of energy, the outflow of organization, the outflow of money, quite frankly, is stunning to me. We've just seen it since Friday, just stunning. So that to me, what turned, you know, it's more than heartwarming. It's actually really hopeful to me that this was the, the, the rattle, the, the, the earthquake actually that, that shook people up uh, to to do whatever they could and and you know some people are feeling dejected and and helpless and to them I say anything anything is something you know talk to your children talk to your other family members talk to strangers talk to your colleagues listen to them listen to their stories everybody now is telling their abortion story lo and behold we all know people who've had at least one abortion so. So even that is huge because people didn't used to do that. Nobody could use that word abortion in public before, even in, within families, it wasn't talked about. People are talking about it now. I think that's just an amazing sign of exciting progress and opening doors. But then other people are joining organizations. They're giving money. They're, you know, People are doing what they can, and I have never seen so many people doing what they can in my history, and I've been doing, I've been in um, reproductive activist work since the 1970s, probably late 70s. So I, it's an exciting time. At the same time, it's a scary time for a lot of folks. I've been talking with Ingrid Anderson, co-founder of Powers and nurse midwife. Ingrid, thank you so much for coming on here and talking with me here today. Thank you, Nate. Thanks for for having us on. The time is now 6.35, and you're listening to the live local news on your community radio station, WORT. I'm your host, Rob McClure. Thanks for joining us this evening. With the 4th of July just around the corner, Parks and Landmarks feature contributor Sean Bull rounds up what else? All the fireworks shows that are happening in Dane County this coming weekend. You're listening to Parks and Landmarks, an exploration of the underrated outdoors. I'm Sean Bull. We're just a few days away from the holiday weekend. If you're anything like me, that means you're searching for a fireworks show to attend, maybe a couple if they're on different nights. Over the next few minutes, I'd like to go over every option in Dane County to save you the trouble of researching them. 
This list is meant to be exhaustive for the 2022 July 4th weekend, but if I missed a fireworks show, email me or let me know in the comments. I should at least be able to add it for the online version of this script. Let's go in more or less chronological order. If we limit our range to Dane County, there's only one fireworks show on Saturday, July 2nd, and it's one of the more unique running this year. Festival Foods Lights the Isthmus is back at Breeze Stevens Field for a second year. Unlike most things on this list, this is a ticketed event. Anyone over the age of 12 pays a $10 admission, or $50 for the rooftop package. The deluxe ticket includes access to an exclusive area above the regular crowd, and unlimited food and soft drinks. Either way, guests are treated to five live bands, followed by fireworks. If last year is any indication, the fireworks at Lights the Isthmus will be pretty, but restrained, unlikely to rattle the windows of any neighboring apartments. If you're looking for more traditional fireworks on the second, I actually do have another option, but it's kind of cheating. Sock Prairie is having a festival, and if you really want to stick to my Dane County only rule, you could watch the show from our side of the Wisconsin River. Now, if you happen to have a canoe or kayak, then you really have something, a really unique viewing opportunity. The moon won't be too far along in its cycle, so the fireworks should be comparatively pretty bright whether or not the sky is cloudy or clear. If you paddle out to the middle of the river, you'll be able to see all the fireworks reflect and diffuse in the water. This adds an extra dimension to the show, one that's worth putting in the extra effort of bringing a boat. There are two options for fireworks on Sunday, July 3rd. Sun Prairie's Angel Park Speedway will have a show after their regularly scheduled races. Perhaps overshadowing this, Sunday's Mallards game will be followed by live music and the second of Festival Foods sponsored fireworks shows. By all accounts, this is supposed to be the big one. There's no direct precedent, but an optimist might hope that the pyrotechnics can live up to the rhythm and booms and shake the lake of the past. We'll see. But even if you leave the duck pond unsatisfied, there's always Independence Day to squeeze in one more show. By my count, Monday, July 4th gives you eight sanctioned fireworks displays to choose from. Where you go to watch depends largely on what you'd like to do before the show. DeForest, Edgerton, Monona, and Stoughton all have multiple day festivals preceding their fireworks, each with its own flair. The Stoughton Fair has a rural bend, with 4-H displays and a tractor pull. Monona has a classic Independence Day parade. And the citizens of Edgerton take it upon themselves to extend their festivities, many shooting off their own fireworks after the city's display is done. Other villages only celebrate on the 4th, but they manage to pack a lot into one day. Wanakee's Wanaboom has something of a military theme running throughout from laser tag to Blackhawk helicopter tours to an F-16 flyover before the fireworks. Shorewood Hills has a few unique points on their itinerary. Not only do they insist that you don't bring candy to the parade, they've organized something called the Adult Waterfight Tournament, which is delightfully vague. There are no rules listed on either the website or the tournament registration form, but it seems to be a real tournament, not just, you know, spraying each other with hoses indiscriminately. There are pie rounds and a trophy, 
and they seem to imply that kids can't participate. There's another water fight tournament just for children. I have no idea what this is, and I have to learn more. The only way to do that seems to be to go and experience the water fight myself. No event Mazamani puts on could top whatever is going on in Shorewood Hills, but their fireworks are pretty good regardless. Their show is elevated, literally, by the choice to shoot off Mazo Bluff. The bluff is visible from anywhere in town, and the land to the east is pretty flat. If you want to keep your distance from the village, you can park at Wisconsin Heights High School, a mile away, and still have a perfectly unobstructed view. To round out this list, let's bring things back to Lake Mendota. Maple Bluff may be a small city, but I believe it's the only one this year launching fireworks directly from the water. If you have access to a boat, you could get as close to the launching barge as any spectator on the beach. Just like with Sauk Prairie, being on the water here adds something truly special. That's a dozen different fireworks shows over one weekend. If I missed your favorite, or you'd like to suggest another topic for Parks and Landmarks to cover, please send it my way at sean.bull at wordfm.org. Tell me about your favorite underrated spot outdoors, or whatever you feel is related. This segment's title is intentionally broad, so just go for it. I'd love to hear from you guys. Again, that's S-E-A-N dot B-U-L-L at W-O-R-T-F-M dot org. Happy early Independence Weekend. For WORT News, I'm Sean Bull. Well, not much in the way of fireworks in the weather last night, though we thought we might see something interesting. Uh, as I mentioned on the Monday morning forecast, yesterday we had some fairly strong winds aloft, producing both speed and directional shear. Uh, that's one important component for strong thunderstorms. So we didn't have a lot of moisture and instability. That's another important component. Uh, at least not until uh, we got quite late in the day when we finally saw a little bit of dew point pooling just ahead of the approaching cold front. So you could probably feel the moisture levels going up as we got towards dark. The front, though, was also later in arriving than predicted yesterday. It didn't really get here until well, well after sundown. So between meager upward-directed energy and a cooling boundary layer, plus the fact that the front was kind of stalling out as it approached and was producing only modest convergence along it. The convection, when it did get here, was pretty spent, uh, and uh, it was still quite vigorous just at mid-evening out over Iowa, where a number of warnings were issued. Still just a rumble or two of thunder by the time it got here. Well, the front basically washed out after it went past us last night, so with uh, light winds during the overnight and the fresh influx of higher dew point air that we saw, not to mention the wet foliage we had from the rain, uh, we did see a large area of fog and low clouds develop this morning to the north side of that boundary, uh, which then took a fair amount of time to mix out today, given the light wind regime we had in place. Uh, and incidentally, if the fog uh, sounds... Uh, puzzling to you because your skies were clear all day. The fog was confined mostly to the north of I-94. Areas to the south were completely clear. Uh, if you have a look at the visible satellite image of the upper Midwest that we have linked on the WORT weather webpage this evening, that goes back about eight hours, you will get a nice view of that low-level moisture pool slowly mixing out during the midday hours today. 
And you'll also see where the surface bo frontal boundary was sitting because the surface wind streamlines are superimposed on that image. And also how that boundary has now begun to move in the hours since then, which is to say to the north and east. Another thing to note if you look at that image is the southeast bound high clouds up above the stratus and fog. The eastward moving stream of cirrus up there is indicative of warmer air and upper ridging moving back over us from the plains to our west. A state of affairs that can also be corroborated by a glance at the water vapor image of North America that's linked on the weather webpage. The warm air is uh, in turn being lifted northeastward over us by a swirl of low pressure that's visible on the water vapor. Uh, it ejects at the beginning of the sequence there east-northeastward off the Pacific Ocean across the Puget Sound region and on towards Lake Winnipeg, uh, where it is now. The brisk eastward motion of that circulation is going to ensure that our heat uh, tomorrow is short-lived with our cold frontal boundary uh, kind of in similar fashion to yesterday, actually, sliding southeastward past us in the late evening or overnight hours tomorrow. And like yesterday, the best kinematics, the best uh, speed and directional shear, and the best instability are going to coincide, but very far from us, to the west and north again. So once again, I'm expecting just kind of dwindling thunderstorms to press into the area uh, probably after midnight this time around, the way the modeling is looking at the moment with the timing. Surface high pressure will then uh, push slowly southward behind the front for Friday, although uh, we will clear the skies that day because of that. Uh, areas to the south and southeast of Madison especially may see a fair bit of continuing cloud cover through a good part of the day because the front's not going to move very quickly to our south and east. And uh, neither this incoming first high-pressure cell for Friday nor the one that's going to follow on them behind it for Sunday into Monday will be particularly robust. So the weak disturbance that's going to be passing in between them in the Saturday night, early Sunday time frame is a little hard to read in terms of precipitation production. There's also some differences between the models on the trajectories of the two high-pressure cells. So I'm expecting to see most of this coming weekend dry, but with the weak systems and a lackadaisical flow pattern, not even the supercomputers can produce an unequivocal, unequivocal outcome, at least at this point. Uh, it does appear, though, looking a bit further ahead, that we will see some longer-term warming as we get into next week, maybe for several days in the mid and end part of the week. After what will be largely low 80s for high temperatures this coming Friday through weekend period, but uh, back to tonight for the specifics, skies should stay uh, generally clear, though with some uptick in mid-level clouds as we get on towards morning and better warmth and moisture begin to ride into the area from the south and west. Temperatures will drop uh, to the low 70s on what will be steady or possibly even increasing southwesterly winds. They'll be up to 8 to 12 miles per hour by the time we get on to, to tomorrow morning. Tomorrow, passing high and mid-level clouds may hold us off 90 degrees, but we should be fairly close with the southwesterly winds coming up to uh, 12 to 18 miles per hour in the afternoon. Winds may be fairly gusty for a while, too, in the afternoon. The dew points shouldn't be terribly oppressive, hanging in the low 60s by and large. Clouds will increase later in the day and overnight, and a round of showers or dying thunderstorms, as I mentioned, uh, perhaps fairly widely scattered as well, may pass through the area in the wee hours of Friday, moving uh, southeastward. Temperatures will drop to the upper 60s overnight as winds veer west and northward behind the front towards dawn. 
And then Friday is likely to see a fair bit of passing cloud cover, uh, thicker and longer lasting south and east of the city with uh, better and faster clearing to the north and west. Temperatures should reach around 80 or so. That'll vary a little bit with the cloud cover. Winds will be northerly at 3 to 7 miles per hour on Friday, and we should see better clearing most areas by the time we get later in the day and then overnight into Saturday with temperatures dropping in that overnight down to the upper 50s. And Saturday will start mostly sunny with cloud cover increasing by uh, mid or late day. Temperatures will reach the low 80s on light northerly winds. Showers may press into the area from the west as we go uh, through the overnight or into Sunday, early Sunday, and uh, winds will back uh, lightly southerly by Sunday. And uh, Sunday itself is kind of a tough call. Passing cloud cover is a fairly good possibility as moisture works back into the area, but I suspect that the precipitation will be generally light. Uh, We'll reach the low 80s again that day with uh, some uptick in dew points into the low 60s. And then incoming moisture will continue to raise precipitation chances as we go into Monday. Uh, At the station on Bedford Street down here in downtown Madison, the temperature is 84 degrees currently. The dew point temperature is 56. Uh, Skies are completely clear overhead. Winds are out of the south at 10 miles per hour. And the barometer is falling at 30.08 inches of mercury. The time is now 6.50 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. We go now back to the first week of July in the late 1960s for some special Independence Day celebrations and other unique events of the age. Here's Stu Levitan with tonight's Madison in the 60s. All the years They melt into a dream Madison, the first week of July in the late 1960s. On a balmy 4th of July 1965, a crowd of about 60,000 packs Vilas Park for the 14th annual Lions Club fireworks display. Three days later, the UW chapter of the Young Americans for Freedom has some fireworks of its own, staging the era's first conservative political demonstration. They're in support of the federal law which allows states to elect anti-union right-to-work laws, Section 14B of the Taft-Hartley Act. So they picket a dedication ceremony at the state capitol, where among the large crowd gathered are Governor Warren Knowles, the four other statewide elected officials, and all legislators. YAF President David Keene and about a dozen activists hand out a thousand leaflets in only two hours, denouncing efforts by congressional Democrats to repeal Section 14B. In 1966, a summer of vandalism besets the Monona Causeway, including destruction of $2,000 worth of sensitive gauges used to measure when fill is compacted enough for further construction. In the construction area near downtown, swimmers and other boaters have also broken down some of the diking material used to prevent erosion of the road that's already there. On July 1st, the city finally posts a notice, quote, Please don't knock this dike down because literally you could be instrumental in washing away part of the causeway. 
The highway, long touted as the vital link between downtown and the southwest, is already a year behind schedule and a million dollars over budget. Also on July 1st, South Madison native Richard Harris, 29, becomes director of the South Madison Neighborhood Center. Harris, UW class of 1961, has a master's degree in social work for the University of Illinois and has worked for the Hyde Park Neighborhood House and the Illinois Youth Commission. On the 4th, the Committee to End the War in Vietnam tries to mix protest with patriotism in a two-pronged action under new co-chairs Robin David and Lowell Bergman. While a group of about 15 stages a 24-hour fast on the Memorial Library Mall, graduate student Walter Lippmann and a small group hand out and sell anti-war pamphlets in Vilas Park until a policeman orders them to stop. He claims, incorrectly, that they need a peddler's permit. Then a handful of high school students start heckling the protesters, and a parks worker who claims to be an army veteran threatens to tip over the table where their literature is displayed. Finally, a sergeant on the scene says their presence is creating a dangerous disturbance and orders them to leave. UW Chancellor Robin Fleming challenges these police priorities, writing Mayor Otto Feske that, quote, their responsibility was to quell any disturbance rather than stop the distribution of this literature, which may have been unpopular with some of the people at the park. But Feske, whose, quote, Bells for Independence proclamation calling for church bells to chime during the afternoon was largely ignored, rejects the criticism. Tension was building toward a possible riot, he says, praising the police for, quote, fulfilling their sworn duty to preserve the peace. No such tension is evident that night, as 60,000 packed the park for the 15th annual Lions Club fireworks display. The council later enacts an ordinance prohibiting the sale, but not the free distribution, of literature in city parks. And in an ironic bit of counter-programming, the Dane County Arena celebrates the 4th by welcoming British Invasion pop stars the Dave Clark Five for what the Capital Times snidely calls a, quote, throbbing, clashing, roaring performance. Earlier that day, the group was welcomed to the Madison Municipal Airport by Mayor Feske and about 500 excited teen girls. 1967 also sees a mix of protest and traditional patriotism. At Vilas Park, Zach Burke's so-called open arts group performs a play which praises North Vietnamese Premier Ho Chi Minh as, quote, the George Washington of Vietnam, a comparison the largely student audience endorses. But a handful of anti-war activists who hand out literature at Westmoreland Park have a tougher time, as they're challenged by young teens and accosted by some adults. As tempers flare, the protesters seek support from the lone policeman present. He advises them to leave, and they do. It's likely this is the last year the Lions Club will be able to use Vilas Park for its patriotic pyrotechnics. Henry Vilas Zoo director Alvy Nelson says several animals, especially llamas and zebras, were so stressed by the explosions they went into shock and may die. The Madison Parks Commission had initially denied the permit out of just that concern, but later relented under public pressure. And the Madison Public Schools enters a new era as the Board of Education votes 4-3 to three to name West High School Principal Douglas Ritchie the new superintendent. 
Mrs. Ruth B. Doyle, who cast the only vote against Ritchie's appointment as principal in 1964, leads the opposition, saying Madison is too big and complex to be a starter district for a first-time superintendent. And she blasts the board's hiring process as haphazard and without any established criteria. July 1, 1968, McDonald's opens near the corner of Lake and State Streets, falsely advertising the Madison franchise as its first with indoor seating. As expected, the Lions Club leaves Vilas Park, taking its fireworks display to Warner Park on the city's north side, where the promise of easier parking brings about 70,000 to the festivities. Activists follow with literature, members of the Committee to End the War in Vietnam, and also a group supporting New York Governor Nelson Rockefeller for president. There are no reported disturbances involving either group. It's a unique 4th of July downtown in 1969, as about 200 residents of the Mifflin neighborhood gather to await the purported appearance of Bob Dylan. According to the Pterodactyl Transit Company, the folk rock legend was to arrive by helicopter and sing a few songs on the steps of the Mifflin Community Co-op. He doesn't. And three days later, the Capital Times reports that the Madison chapter of the Students for a Democratic Society votes 66 to 35 to stay neutral in the struggle for control between the National Office Revolutionary Youth Movement faction, headed by Mark Rudd, Bernadine Dorn, Bill Ayers, and others, and the Progressive Labor Party Worker Student Alliance group from Boston. It's the first action by a local chapter following the chaotic National SDS Conference in Chicago earlier this month. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, listener-supported, independence-celebrating WRT News team, I'm Stu Levitan. And that does it for our show this evening. Thanks for tuning in to WRT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer this evening was David Ahrens. Our reporter was Reed Kamai. Special thanks to feature contributors Sean Bull and Stu Levitan. Chuck Kademan is our on-air engineer this evening, and Nate Weggehaupt produced the newscast. Shelley Pittman is the news director at WORT, and I'm your host, Robert McClure. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your pods. And stay tuned next for a query. That'll be followed by This Way Out at 7.30. And we'll be back in your ears tomorrow night at 6 with all of tomorrow's news. Until then, good night.